You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. It's wonderful to be among friends uh, here at Hope. So many of you uh, have been joined with compassion, as as uh, Pastor has said, and you're being missionaries to children all around the world, and I thank you for that. In my role at Compassion for these 35-plus years, almost 36, I've had the opportunity to visit most of our work in 25 countries. I, I've lost count of how many children's homes I've visited. And one of the things I love to do when I visit with our sponsor children is to engage with them and ask them this simple question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Right? It's a, it's a popular question with kids. And I love to, to listen and watch them because one thing I've learned is that the children in our program will have lots of dreams. They have hope almost stamped in their DNA because they have come in contact with Jesus Christ. Just a couple of years ago, a couple of my colleagues were in India doing some filming. And they, they came across a rock quarry. If you know the Indian culture, the situation there, there's a thing called bonded labor where you are basically a slave labor in a rock quarry with a hammer smashing little stones into pieces, probably to pay off a very small family debt that maybe even your parents incurred. And he met with these three young boys, young teenagers, after they had spent 12 hours in the hot sun beating rocks with hammers. And he asked them this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the youngest one had an answer. I think if I remember, it was an airplane pilot. He had once seen an airplane flying over. And the, the second oldest, I believe it was a policeman he wanted to be. But the third oldest, he was about 14 or 15. When he was posed that question, he dropped his head, looked to the ground, and quietly said these haunting, powerful words. I have learned not to dream. I have learned not to have hope. Poverty speaks to a child and tells them, you're no good. You don't matter. You're nothing. Life will always be this way. And it leaves children all around the world hopeless, believing there is no way out. One young lady that I got to know in our program from Uganda, her name is Harriet. I wish I had time to tell you her story. It's amazing. But she grew up in such abject poverty. Her father abandoned the family when she was just about six or seven years old. And in a struggle to try and help her mom and her younger siblings, she imagined that the only option she had was when she became about 12 or 13, she could go to the city of Kampala and work on the streets at night. She had lost all sense of hope. She didn't think she had any options but that one low job. 
Just a little while later, the church in her village formed a partnership with Compassion and opened up a child development center. She and her siblings were the first to be registered because they were the poorest in the village. Fast forward, in that Compassion program in the local church, she met Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ told her, those things you've been listening to are lies. And she began to get hope that she had never heard, heard of before or imagined. If you were to meet her today, you would meet a lawyer who is very successful in Camp Paula and specializes in children's humans, human rights. What changed her destiny is one day she met the giver of hope. But more powerful than the lies of poverty is the hope of Jesus. Through the care of the local church and through the encouragement of loving Christian adults who mentor, who love, who protect these children around the world. You know, studies have been done most recently by the University of uh, San Francisco that proves that hope is transformative. Just, just having hope can change someone's life. In fact, it doesn't even matter if that hope is based on reality or if it's simply optimism. When, somebody, when someone gets the gift of hope, their life changes, their outlook changes. But let me tell you something. When that hope is God-based, when that hope is not just a message on television that says some foreign group is going to bring money or food to your country. When that hope comes out of Scripture and is God-based, it becomes a force more powerful than poverty. I want to take you to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 29 to 31. You know this verse of Scripture, and you couldn't not know it in a church named Hope and a pastor who won't stop talking about hope. How many times I've heard him say, oh, that'd be a good name for a church. <laughs> Isaiah 40, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Think about Harriet in her struggle, in her situation. He gave strength to her. Even youths grow tired and weary, the scripture says, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll get more than a second wind. They will soar on wings of eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So, how does hope work? Well, the Bible talks about hope as being unseen. 
In fact, Romans 8.24 is a great scripture because it says there, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Remember the last time you hoped for something? Remember the last time when maybe it was when a Christmas morning and you saw the package under the tree and you go, that's just the size, that's just the shape of what I wanted. You couldn't see it, you, couldn't, you didn't know exactly what was there. But you believed. And the Bible says that if you could see it, it's not hope at all. We hope for what, who hopes for what we already have, the scripture says. Now let me tell you a story. I am not, this disclaimer, I am not what you would call a, a sports person. Uh, I went fishing a few times in my life. Most of the time when I was dating my wife, Sharon, and trying to get on the good side of her dad. I didn't like fishing. I couldn't stand it. I went a couple times with some friends, but let me tell you a story about one particular fishing trip. It was probably the biggest one because it lasted two days, which was probably a day and a half too long. <laughs> but we were fishing all day and caught absolutely nothing. Niche, silch, nothing. I remember just throwing out the line and the hook and not even paying attention to it. I had lost all hope. You know, after a few hours of that, even my best friends got on my nerves. Their jokes were corny. The sky somehow lost its real blue uh, color. You know, it was, it was kind of grayish. The trees didn't seem green anymore. In fact, all I could think about was, what kind of excuse would they believe that I could leave and go home? What, what could I make up that could get me out of here? Have you ever been in that situation? Maybe it wasn't fishing, but something else. Later in the afternoon, another friend, not of mine, but another friend of some people in our group, came by and was all excited and said, have you not been over that hill to the lake over there? He said, the fish there are jumping, just waiting to be caught. I'm going to take you there tomorrow. All of a sudden, my friends weren't that bad anymore. All of a sudden, the trees seemed more vividly green. The sky, oh my goodness, it just turned incredibly blue. What changed? Do you know? What changed? Hope. All of a sudden, I had hope that things were going to be different tomorrow. The poor, especially children, are at greatest risk of losing hope. To understand the power of hope, we must understand what I like to call the theology of poverty and how poverty steals hope and replaces it with fear and with insecurity. So I want to talk to you a little bit about hope lost. How did hope go missing in the world in which we live? So in the opening chapters of the Bible, if you go back to the book of Genesis, we are shown there a world in which everything is perfect. One that God declares is very good. 
Now, another disclaimer, I come from Eastern Canada. I grew up in Halifax. And if something was very good, you know how we would, what we would say? We'd say, that's some good. Anybody here? That's your vocabulary? That's some good. And I can just imagine God after creating everything. Because the Bible says he stood back and he observed his creation. And I kind of, in my translation of the Bible, God rubs his hands together and says, that's some good. He thought what he had done was amazing. It was a perfect world. It was a world in which poverty could not exist. There was no word in the vocabulary of Adam and Eve for poverty. But then something terrible happened. Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator. They disobeyed. They sinned. And they set in motion by that sin events that would turn God's good creation into one where poverty now becomes the default setting of every human being born on this earth. Because of their sin, all of humanity came under a curse. It is this curse that is at the heart of poverty today. You ask me what causes poverty, my answer is brief, sin. Not the sin of that little child that stole a cookie. Not the sin of that mother. The sin of our forefathers. The sin that changed the destiny of the human race. That, my friends, is the cause of poverty. And unless we understand what happened in the Garden of Eden, we will never understand poverty, nor will we understand how to deal with it. Romans 5 12 to 14 helps us understand this, it, this isn't fair. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this is fair, that one couple's sin impacts everybody. But that's how it happened, and that's the truth. And Romans tells us, you know the story, how Adam landed us in this dilemma we're in. First sin, then death. And that word death doesn't just mean you stop breathing, but it's the death of joy, it's the death of happiness, it's the death of, of a life fulfilled. First sin, then death. And no one is exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relationships with God in everything and everyone. Even, listen to this, even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying God's specific command still had to experience the devastation of sin. Poverty first entered the world because of sin. And now everything has been impacted by that sin, whether it's our relationship with the land that we farm. We now have thorns and weeds and all these pestilence that we have to fight with. Whether it's our relationship with one another. You know, Adam and Eve's relationship and all of their children's relationships were, were strained because of that sin. Even their children fought with each other. One killed the other. Still today, we have war. We have hatred. All stems back to this original sin. Our relationship with God was affected by this sin. 
God used to come down in the afternoon and take a little stroll around the garden with Adam and Eve. That ended. And Adam and Eve hid themselves. And they were estranged and separated from God. And sin has affected the way sinful human beings have set up institutions and systems. You see, here's the truth that we need to understand. Broken people create broken systems. Have you watched the news on Venezuela lately and many other countries of the world? Broken people, broken by sin, produce and create broken systems which perpetuate poverty. But the root cause is sin. It is from this curse that Jesus came to set people free. So if poverty at its most basic level is a spiritual issue, then there must be a spiritual solution. So let's look at hope stirred. From the Garden of Eden onward, people were searching for the hope that Adam's sin stole from them. It wasn't until the New Testament that hope materialized in the person of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. For the first time since Adam, mankind had tangible reason to hope. God became flesh and dwelt among us. He became one of us. Now, for a little context, the world in which Jesus was born and grew up in was a very, very hostile world to the human race. Poverty was rampant. The, the world in which Jesus lived in would be no different than the country of Haiti or other countries that you would know of today where poverty abounds. Life expectancy had dramatically dropped from hundreds of years down to just 35 years. Most people in Jesus' time were poor. So when Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth, people were all ears. They were listening to what he had to say. So we go to Luke chapter 14 where Jesus steps into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. In verse 18, where he picks up the scroll that was handed to him and he reads from the book of Isaiah these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to the poor. You would have thought that that would have created a tsunami of applause. Standing ovations rippling through the town of Nazareth. The only problem was the people didn't like his quote-unquote good news. They wanted food. They wanted medicine. They wanted jobs. They did not want this gospel thing that he talked about. How is that good news? Because just like today, most people who work with the poor, 
don't even consider the gospel to be an adequate answer to poverty. It's not even in their vocabulary. Just like in the time of Jesus in Nazareth, where, don't preach to me, rabbi. Give me something to eat. Most organizations that work with the poor around the world, Christian and non-Christian in many cases, use the very same strategy. They give things to the poor. Food, medicine, education. These are all necessary. We are, in fact, told to do that. But that is not our main strategy. We do those things just like Jesus did. He had the largest feeding program in the world, but he didn't come to earth to feed people. Why did he do it? Because he loved them and they were hungry. Duh. We are to feed people when they're hungry because we love them. But if all we do is feed or clothe or educate, we are treating symptoms of poverty not the root. The root of poverty is not hunger. Hunger is a symptom of poverty. The root of poverty is sin. If poverty were simply a lack of food, education, or medicine, then it would make sense for our efforts to only focus on these things. But as we read in Scripture we see that behind all the devastation that poverty brings, there is something else at work, a spiritual condition that undermines our best efforts to change our own circumstances. There must be a supernatural intervention in order to break the chains of poverty. No other intervention has the power to change lives than the gospel. How many of you here today, your lives have been dramatically changed by the power of the gospel? How many friends or family members? How many know someone whose life was just going downhill fast and all of a sudden they encountered Jesus Christ? All of the programs they joined, all of the meetings and seminars they went to only helped temporarily. But when Jesus enters the person's heart, that person's destiny is changed. So hope lost at the Garden of Eden, hope stirred through Jesus' clear message to us, and hope realized. Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You know that great commission. We are told to go and bring hope to the hopeless. If you understand the Bible, you understand that anyone in any culture, in any country, in any circumstance or situation, anyone without Jesus is hopeless. If you've ever been to a non-Christian funeral, you can sense the hopelessness. I was recently to a Christian funeral. My son-in-law's dad passed away. He was a man of God. There was hope there overflowing. Everyone knew exactly where he was now. 
And many people in the audience had their life changed because he invested in them in a spiritual way. So we work with children especially. We specialize in children of poverty around the world. And we find that the enemy speaks lies to children. It's part of his strategy. He tells children like he told Harriet, like he told that young teenager in India. He tells them that they don't matter. They're nothing. Life is always going to be this way. But more powerful than the lies of poverty is the hope of Jesus. The care of the local church and the encouragement of people like you and I who sponsor these children, who pray for them, who encourage them, who write a little note and say, God loves you. I prayed for you today. Our family prays for you. You see, releasing children from poverty is a lifelong journey. It's not an event. It's not a program. It's not a one-off or one-time gift. Just like raising our own children isn't a weekend job. We don't just take them out and buy them new clothes and say, oh, good for another year. It's an ongoing process. process. Discipleship is an ongoing process. Many of you here today, as Pastor said, are already sponsoring children with compassion, and I want to say a big thank you, a high five to you. I hope you realize, I trust you understand the spiritual impact of what you are doing. You are not just giving foreign aid to poor children. You are a missionary to those children, bringing the hope of the gospel every day in their program. And today and tomorrow and the next day, some 500 of those children are going to accept Jesus Christ. And every child that comes to Jesus Christ, our research tells us about four family members come to Christ. Think of it. Get out your phone and calculate that. That's 2,000 people a day, every day of the year. The power of the gospel. When I was here the very first time years ago, I remember making a statement I had never said before, and I wondered after I said it, hmm, should I have been that bold? Uh, you were interviewing me, Pastor, and, and I, I said something to this effect. The world doesn't need more compassion as an organization. The world needs more Jesus. Compassion is not the answer. We bring the answer. The church is not the answer. The church brings the answer. The answer is and always will be Jesus. So as a sponsor for you that are doing that, just to encourage you, you truly are a missionary to the family of that child you sponsor. You actually become, have become part of their church. I want to show you a picture up here of a young guy named Samuel. Uh, he's, he's the guy kneeling down on the, on the front. Samuel is one of our sponsored children. And behind him, flanking him, is, are, are many of the workers at the Compassion Church Project where Samuel attends. There's the project cook. There's a night watchman, the gardener. There's the, the tutor and, and on and on. 
these people are investing daily into Samuel's life. He's holding a photograph. You can't quite see it this far away. He's holding a photograph of his sponsor. And that sponsor is making all that happen. That's what being a missionary is like. You may not be able to go physically and live in Samuel's village or the child you sponsor, but through your faithfulness, you are actually part of Samuel's church. Think of it. You're part of Hope Church here in Oakville. You're part of a second church wherever your sponsored child is. You are partnering with that pastor with that leadership team, with those Sunday school teachers, with those youth workers, you are one of them making it happen. We don't often get a chance this powerful to actually transform a child's life. My prayer is that we as Christ followers will take every advantage of every opportunity we have to bring the good news to everyone we can, whether it's your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your friends, your community, the world. We need to be purveyors of this good news. My prayer for you and all the children and families that we serve now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13 is one of, one of my favorite verses. May you be encouraged that your labors are not in vain. May you not be distracted by the messages of the world that say just send more money and that'll fix everything. If money were to fix it, we'd have, we'd have got the job done long ago. We have over 2 million children that have gone through our program so far, and we currently have just over 2 million children in our program. Many, many hundreds of thousands of those children that have gone through our program are now pastors, mission leaders, wonderful parents, wonderful community members investing in the people around them and sharing the gospel. Do you know that Harriet, the little girl I told you about, she's only 26 years old. Her and her, her classmates, the Compassion Kids that were in her class, have already won 900 people to Christ. You talk about the power of investment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the love you have for this world, the world in which you planted us, even though this world often scorns you, ignores you, ridicules you, blasphemes you, you love the people you created. You have a plan for every human being born. I thank you for the power of the good news of the gospel. I thank you, God, for, for loving this world so much that you actually took action. You did something at a great personal cost, giving your own son, Jesus Christ, to come to this world 
and to bring the good news that there is hope, there is a way out, there is a brighter future. There are fish over that hill in the pond that are jumping ready to be caught. Your son Jesus is the hope of the world. And to him we pledge our allegiance. Amen.